I've shared with you uh, last Sunday how impacted I've been by this wonderful book by Alan Kreider that's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in that book, Alan Kreider tells a true story of a young man in the year 312 AD in the upper regions of Egypt who suddenly found himself in terrible trouble. Pacomius grew up in a small town in upper Egypt as part of a poor pagan farming family. But one day when he was only 20 years old, he was nabbed by a gang of troops that was carrying out forced military conscriptions in his area. They captured a bunch of young men and forced them against their will to become soldiers in the Egyptian army. So they chained them up, threw them into the hold of some ships and began to make their way down the Nile from his village. When they got to Thebes, where they docked for the night, they put these young men in prison in order to keep them from escaping. The Christians in Thebes heard about these young men who had been chained and were being held under guard. And they were deeply concerned for them. So they gathered together some things to eat and drink and they hurried to the prison and there they shared their food with these captured men. Pacomius was so surprised that total strangers would show care in that way. And he asked someone who these people were, who were so willing to perform such a humble act of mercy and to bring them help. It was the Christians, he was told, who were in the habit of doing acts of kindness toward everyone, especially strangers. When he asked what a Christian was, Pacomius was told that they were followers of a genuine religion, godly people who put their hope in the one who made heaven and earth and all of humanity. They bear the name of Jesus Christ, they told him, and they do good to everyone in his name. According to the ancient account, when Pacomius heard this, his heart was set on fire. He felt as though his interior was flooded with heavenly light and he felt irresistibly drawn to the Christian faith. Right then, he prayed and he committed his life to God, promising that if God showed him how to live a holy life from that point forward, and if God were to set him free from his chains, he would serve Christ all of his days, loving God and loving those that God brought into his life, serving them as he himself had been served by these Christians. And in fact, that is what happened for the rest of his life. So as this account says, Christians were known for their habit of doing acts of kindness toward everyone, especially strangers. Where did they get that idea? During the last week that he spent on earth, Jesus sought to prepare his disciples for the fact that, first of all, he would soon leave them, and then second, that he would be gone for a long, long time before he finally returned. So to prepare them for that long time of waiting, he left them with three parables that are familiar to you about how to live faithfully in this in-between. We find them in Matthew chapter 25. First, the parable of the women and their lamps about how we are to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus, faithfully waiting for his return, no matter how long it takes. 
Next, the parable of the three servants and the the different treasures that had been entrusted to them about how they were to invest the gifts and resources that God gave us to make a kingdom difference during our lives. And then last, the parable of the sheep and the goats about how we are to see the world as God sees it, loving those that God brings into our lives and into our awareness who are in need and making a difference by meeting those needs in practical ways. So getting ready to leave them, Jesus invites his followers to see the world as he sees it. A world held in the Father's hands. And he sends them out into the world to make a difference. His representatives fleshing out his love in his name. Here's how that third parable begins. You can find it in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those who are on his right, come, You who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom that's been prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now the righteous will answer him. Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller defines a biblical idea of justice as giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. Justice, he says, reflects the holy character of God. That's why Jesus spoke such stern words to those who failed to provide justice towards others. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Over and over again in scripture, as Keller points out, justice describes taking up the care and the cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Those who have been titled the quartet of the vulnerable. Whatever you do to the least of them, Jesus says, you do for me. James echoes the parable of Jesus and reminds us that according to scripture, our Christian faith isn't just about what we believe. It's about what we do, how we live as well. Our faith, if it's genuine, will show up in our loving actions. James chapter one, beginning in verse 22, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And James chapter two, beginning in verse 14, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Here's how Keller sums up what the Bible teaches about justice. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creatures of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and the vulnerable. It consists of a broad range of activities, from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life, to regular, radically generous giving of our time and resources, to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. A beautiful example of this that I just learned about last night. I love this. I love this as an expression of the heart of God and the outworking of God's kingdom purposes. A woman who is from Russia, who is part of our congregation from Russia, is told me about an effort that she is part of that is called Stand With Ukraine Lafayette to help provide winter clothing for Ukrainians. Isn't that beautiful? If you're interested in helping, bring warm clothes that you'd like to donate next Sunday and they'll be shipped out the week following. As followers of Christ, we believe that the scriptures call us, whether through sharing our faith, serving those around us, seeking to make things right in our community, or reaching the lost, to make a difference in this world in Christ's name. Two thoughts as we consider what it means to make a difference in our world as followers of Christ. You know these things, we know them, but I think it's just helpful for us to remind each other of them. First, through our efforts, we don't bring about the kingdom. We don't bring about the new heaven and the new earth. That's God's work. But we are called to reflect that kingdom and to anticipate that it is coming, to put that kingdom that we are a part of on display. And second, through our efforts to seek justice and show mercy, we may not make a lasting difference in this broken world. This world has a way of undoing things that are done, and few changes on this side of eternity are permanent. But we will make a significant difference for everyone that we serve, maybe even a life-changing difference. As in the example of Pacomius, there are no small things when it comes to showing love. And we will certainly make an eternal difference. Everything we do in the name of Jesus has eternal value. Great Love, Lauren, could I invite you to come up? Great Love is a wonderful, haunting song about the difference that we can make in this world when we do small things with great love. As Lauren sings this song for us now, I just want to encourage you to prayerfully reflect on how God is calling you and how he is calling us to be his hands and his feet in this world.
That was beautiful. Thank you. How is God calling you to be his hands and feet? This church does an amazing job of going out into the world in Jesus's name and doing little things in great love in ways that really make a great difference. I've invited four people to join me up here on the platform this morning to talk about what it looks like to make a difference in Christ's name in areas of our community and our world where they are involved. But I could have easily invited 40 of you up here. So two questions. Thank you for joining me up here. Two questions for each of you. Uh, first of all, I'm curious to know how your uh, faith is shaping your engagement in the world in kind of in a broad way. And then I'd love to hear from you some specific ways that uh, we might be able to be involved in similar ways to ways you're involved. So Diane Shockey is our new liaison and volunteer coordinator at Murdoch Elementary School, where we've had a partnership as a church for over um, probably a dozen years or more. And uh, Diane, I'd love to hear you describe what it is that has, um, as a response of your faith, that has moved you to be engaged in that area. Well, Jesus has done a, a lot for me. My life is really different than it would have been had I not come to know him and had he not worked in my life. And sometimes I wonder, how, how can I thank him for that? You know, what can I do? And so this verse has always meant something to me, and it's just a coincidence that it's the verse David preached on this morning. Um, Matthew 25, 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, and I, I see that Jesus has a heart for the poor and a heart for outcasts. And so Murdoch is a school full of poor children, and Jesus loves them so much. And so that's why I got involved there. Thanks. Daniel Sampson, you and your wife Emily have been actively involved in uh, advocacy for at-risk kids. You have shown that in beautiful ways through foster care and adoption, and also through the involvement you've both thrown yourselves into with Isaiah 117 House. How would you describe the intersection between your faith and your involvement in some of those areas? Uh, well, Jesus, he, he always intentionally sought out those who are marginalized uh, and vulnerable in our society. Um, and, and with, uh, you know, as a foster or adoptive parent, uh, is, is intentionally, intentionally seeking out those kids. And, um, and also in my career as a behavior consultant, um, called to meet with people with uh, special needs and behavioral challenges there, um, and just meeting them where they are. Dewey Johnson, you serve alongside Frankie Kong and Alice Wong and Alex Pothan and a whole team of people in our World Welcome Ministry, which is designed to provide a to practice hospitality and provide a welcome for international students and scholars in our midst. Uh, tell us how your faith has led you into involvement in that area. Uh, since there is this, there is a verse that, or a couple of verses that really mean a lot to me from Isaiah forty-three. I'll just read them for you. It says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name. Uh, every fall, we have 
the special privilege here in West Lafayette, and I'm so glad that I'm here, um, to welcome thousands of students and scholars and people from all over the world into our community. Uh, God brings them here to us, to our doorstep. In the 1980s, my family and I were involved as a host family for Wycliffe Bible Translators. The missionaries that came through our home during that time just gave me and my children a real love for people and cultures of, of other nations. And so we've been blessed to be able to minister and to open our front door to some of those folks who have come into our communities, and it has been a real blessing to us. Thanks. Julie Williams, you've served on our staff as a missions coordinator for several years, and you are also the new chair of the mission partnership team. How would you answer the same question? Well, a lot of us think of um, the Great Commission verses in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the last thing that Jesus said, one of the last things Jesus said to his followers, so we know that that's important. Mm -hmm. But also, as I have read through um, the scriptures from front to back, um, I realize that God's mission has been all along to the whole world. And um, particularly as I read through the New Testament, the early church, the baby Christians there felt it was their responsibility to support the missionaries that were going out, not just financially, but also with encouragement and also with sending people. And one thing in my own life that I realized is um, ages ago, I was a youth group leader with my husband, Kurt, and we were asked to go on a Mexico mission trip, my first mission trip ever. And I thought, I'm really not that interested in missions, <laughs> but I guess I'll go because I have to. Lord has a big sense of humor, doesn't he? <laughs> Changed my mind there. Love that. So let's just go back the other direction. Um, if you would answer, if one of us wanted to jump into the sort of area that God has brought you into in serving, what might that look like? What are some specific opportunities that are available for us to serve? Well, that last story I shared um, brings about an opportunity that each of you have. This year, we're going to be sending two mission teams to Mexico, the same place I went, having never been on a mission trip before. And I just want to personally invite each of you to look into it. Uh, we want to send people from our congregation, both people that have been involved in missions in the past and for people that this is their first experience. Today, after this service, you have the opportunity to go to an information meeting for those two mission trips. It'll be held directly after service in the conference room. It will be brief. We want you to get out of here and get into that meeting so that you can have food and picnic later. But I want to encourage you to really seriously think about going and finding out more about that. But in addition, I also want to encourage you to just... Continue to learn more about missions and to continue to pray and encourage those that we have as missions partners. Thanks. And those two trips, January and March, right? Yes. Okay, great. Dweez. Um, you, we all have the opportunity of um, opening our doors to neighbors and people from the university. I know in my own neighborhood, there are many people from around the world. Um, and it just takes practicing a little hospitality and uh, 
you get to partake in, in your small part here at home as part of the Great Commission. Um, in addition, World Welcome meets every Sunday during this service, the second service downstairs in GP1. We would love to see you come and join us and begin to make some friendships with people from all over the world. Uh, also, World Welcome will be sponsoring again a Thanksgiving meal for international students. Last year, we uh, provided a, pro a little bit, almost 100 meals for international students as part of this Thanksgiving Day hospitality. So we would love to have any of you come and help us with cooking and serving to our guests. Um, announcements, I'm sure, will be forthcoming about that. It's the Saturday after Thanksgiving that the dinner will be held here. So uh, there's, there's a number of ways to, um, to help with uh, foster and adoptive parents here in our community. I know um, there was the uh, Foster Parent Networking Group that was uh, started by Susan Hyde, a um, member of our congregation here. There's a number of foster and adoptive parents, so there's, there's supports there. I know that maybe not everybody is called to uh, become a, a foster or adoptive parent, um, but you can always be involved. Um, as Pastor Henderson mentioned, uh, my wife is the program coordinator for the Isaiah 117 house uh, for Tippecanoe County and they support uh, children who are entering foster care. And so that's, that's a great resource if you want to get involved with, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Also with, uh, there's a number of other um, nonprofit organizations and, and there's like foster closets in, in our community that, um, that you can reach out to and donate clothing or other items to. Um, if you want to support people with maybe behavioral challenges or, or special needs, um, organizations that I've come across uh, include uh, Grants House, Shine On University, um, or Oasis Community, which um, Pastor Iman is, is intimately involved with in, in our community. And um, just with all those people and all those, those uh, resources, the, the greatest resource I think we have is, is, is your prayers. Um, of course, you know, your financial support is, is always helpful, but we always cover your prayers in all these endeavors. Well, I was a kindergarten teacher, so I have props to tell you how to help at Murdoch. And the first one is to remind you or mention to you that Covenant does an event called Trunk or Treat at Murdoch. Murdoch's in a neighborhood that isn't really safe for kids to trick or treat in. And so for years, Covenant has done a very simple thing where we just come over, park our cars, pass out candy. Covenant helps buy the candy. You can make it as, um, you know, costumey or, or not. And just whatever you would like to do to come and help, kids are welcome. We'd love to have you on Tuesday, the 25th of October. Another way that you can help at Murdoch a little bit more um, personally maybe, is you can read to kids, you can help them with their homework. There are teachers that need help throughout the school day, mostly just with helping these kids learn to read because a lot of them are behind. And we can make a big difference by showing up to do that. Um, there's also an after school program that you can come by maybe at a different time later in the day that would work for you um, to help kids with their homework. And the final one, which is my favorite, but you're gonna wonder why I'm pulling out a dishcloth. But 
This is a dishcloth. Um, I've been showing up at Murdoch on Mondays, just doing whatever they need me to do. And one of the things they need me to do is help in the lunchroom. It's, it's been the, the coolest thing. I just help kids open their milk, and I clean up the tables when they're done. And it's a real easy way just to, you know, literally give a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name. Awesome. All right. <laughs> um, thanks, you all. So appreciate all you are doing, and thanks for this. How might God be inviting you to be his hands and feet in this community and in this world? Before I come to the, just the last part of my message, the, the wrap-up of the message in the series, I just want to circle back around to Alan Kreider's book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, one more time. And I just want to share this observation that I thought of his that I thought was incredibly profound, summarizing the impact of the early Christians' actions on those who looked on from outside, this is what Kreider writes. What the outsiders saw when they looked at the church was not their worship, it was their way of life. According to early eyewitnesses, the outsiders looked at the Christians and they saw them energetically feeding poor people, providing decent burials for those who had died, caring for boys and girls who lacked parents or resources, being attentive to aged slaves and prisoners, and they interpreted these actions as works of love. And they said, Vide, look how they love one another. They didn't say, Aude, listen to the Christian's message. They didn't say, Lege, read what they write. Hearing and reading were important, and some early Christians worked to communicate in these ways too. But we must not miss the reality. The pagans said, look, Christianity's truth was visible. It was embodied and enacted by its members. What do outsiders to the faith see when they look at your life? So as we close this morning's message, the, this wrap-up for this morning, but also for our fall series, I just want to take a, a moment and step back with you again and look at the whole. So anyone, anybody in here know who lost the Super Bowl in 1960? Surely somebody knows. No? Green Bay Packers. Here's why that's relevant. <laughs> A few months later, at the start of training camp in the 1961 season, Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, walked into the locker room with a football under his arm. And then he held it up and he said one of the most famous lines in sports history, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> there are all kinds of dimensions to the game, so many different things that they could have been focusing on as a team as they look towards the fall, but Lombardi wanted to bring them back to the fundamentals. There's so many dimensions to the Christian life. There are so many things that we could be focusing on at any point as a Christian family. But each fall, at the start of our new season, we try to stop and just remember together the fundamentals that stand at the heart of the Christian life. That's why we've been taking this time to walk through this series on our calling as a church and the ways that we believe that calling will express itself, it, the ways it will show up in visible, tangible ways in our life as a church family. We have hoped that this series would just be a spark for you to have a conversation with the Lord about where you are and where he's taking you. 
So to remind you again, our calling as a church family is to live a life of love, which has three dimensions to it, to love Jesus, to love his people, and to pour out his love on the world. Is there a place where you are hearing God's invitation in that? His encouragement, his challenge? Is there something that needs to decrease in your life so that the things of God can increase? And here are the ways that we believe that the scripture leads us to expect our calling will show up, will express itself in our individual lives and in our life together. The six expressions of our calling is we love Jesus, we will worship daily and weekly and study the scriptures regularly. As we love his people, we will participate in Christ-centered relationships and we will use our gifts to serve the church family And as we pour out his love on this world, we will love our literal neighbors and we will make a difference in this world in Jesus' name. As you look at this expanded expression of our calling as a church, and as you think about your own life, where do you feel encouraged? Where do you see signs of strength and maturing in your life? And where do you see gaps? Where are some places that you might be hearing God's invitation? What things might need to shift around in your life to make more room for the important things? What do you need to say no to in order to say yes to this? What's the next step that you think God may be calling you to? In the end, you know this, and we say this often, the Christian life is not the life that we try to live for God It is our cooperating with the life that God desires to live in us and through us. So what is your yes to him? Would you pray with me? Lord, again and again, the scriptures remind us that you wait for us with open arms. As we run to you, we open our arms, we open our hearts, we open our lives to you as well. Lord, form in us your life of love.